Hello, everyone. This is Ryan Tripp for the New Books Network. We're here again at the Native American Studies channel. Today, we have Professor David Postumus of the uh, University of South Dakota. He is Assistant Professor of Anthropology and Native American Studies. Welcome, Professor Postumus. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. We're going to be discussing his new book published earlier this year, All My Relatives, Exploring Lakota Ontology, Belief, and Ritual. Now, before we get into this book, I'd like to actually discuss a little bit this uh, lovely cover. Um, it's a 1973 Buffalo image. Can you tell us a little bit about the cover and why you selected it for the publication? Yeah, sure. So this is a piece by Arthur Amiot. Um, and uh, let's see, my, my academic advisor, Ray DeMalley from Indiana University, um, he, had the, he has the original. And it always hung above his desk at home where he would work. Um, and I was always just taken by it and really, really loved it and thought it was just uh, kind of a stunning piece. Um, and when I was doing my field work at Pine Ridge Reservation, um, where I do my field work, but I was uh, I lived there from 2011 to 2012. And I would go up and visit Arthur Amiot, the artist, at his home in Custer. Um, and we just developed a really close, good relationship. And he's, you know... Um, one of my best, one of my best friends out there, really. Um, and I, I continue to go back and visit him and we, we talk on the phone and keep up and everything. And so anyways, he was a big kind of help in my research and um, helping me think about these kind of esoteric uh, things in Lakota culture and Lakota traditions. And so when I got my book ready, I, I really wanted to use one of his uh, pieces and, um, and he agreed, of course. Um, and then uh, I was like, well, which one do I want to use? And so I was looking back through we had scanned uh, a bunch of Arthur Amia originals when I was at Indiana doing my grad work. And, um, and I came across this one and I was just like, oh, yes, this one is perfect because, um, well, because it means something to me because it was by Arthur uh, and also because it, it hung in Ray's office. Um, but also because it just so perfectly captures what this book is about. Uh, it's kind of a human, abstract human face. And there the eyes are, there's a turtle and a bison. It's kind of like the line between human and non-human is so blurred. And that's really what uh, this book is about, is about kind of exploring the interface of nature and culture in Lakota culture. So as an offshoot to that question and response, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? How and why did, for example, did you come to study uh, particularly 19th century Lakota spirituality and publish this book for uh, University of Nebraska, Nebraska Press? Yeah. Um, so I get asked this question all the time, you know, why, um, why are you interested in Lakota stuff and, and particularly Lakota ceremonial life and spirituality? Um, and really the, the answer is not that exciting or interesting. I must say, um, I've just always been interested. I've just always been fascinated. Um, I grew up in Michigan and as a young man, I was kind of always interested in native American stuff and particularly, the Plains and particularly Lakota from a very young age. And um, we were looking at my like report cards a couple Christmases ago at my mom's house. And um, it was my fourth grade report card. And it was like, what was your favorite unit of fourth grade? And it was the native American unit of the, the native Americans of the great lakes unit, you know? So just even back then in elementary school, I was just interested in native American culture and society and tradition uh, traditions. Um, <clears throat> and then when I went to undergraduate school at, um, when I went to college at Michigan State University, um, 
my first year, my freshman year, I was just kind of searching and um, as a lot of college freshmen are. And uh, I started reading a lot on my own outside of the classes I was taking. So I was reading all the kind of classics um, in this area. I read Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, Black Elk Speaks, uh, The Sacred Pipe, uh, Marie Sandos' Crazy Horse, just all these things that were just like so fascinating. And like, this is what I want to be doing. You know, this is, there's a reason that I'm doing this. I want to be reading these things and all these kinds of thoughts that a freshman in college might have. Um, <clears throat> and then um, I, I was a interdisciplinary studies in the social sciences major. That was my major. I was undecided for a while. And I was just knew that I was really interested in this, this stuff, this Native American culture stuff, um, but that I didn't know how to quite approach it. I didn't know what anthropology was at the time. Um, and so I just I did this interdisciplinary major that allowed me to take courses on all kinds of different Native American studies topics. So history and religious studies, especially, were the ones that were kind of in- interesting to me. Um, and it just kind of snowballed from there. I started working with this guy, uh, Bob McKinley. At, uh, at Michigan State, who was a great mentor for me um, and a very kind person. And uh, I think probably like later in my junior year there, um, he said, you know, well, uh, what do you want to do with this? You know, uh, you know, really what you're doing here is anthropology. And I said, what's anthropology? And so he told me I should take an anthropology class. So I, I took one anthropology class, cultural anthropology as an undergrad, and that was it. And it was mostly just focusing on uh, the area studies, if you want to say that, of uh, Native North America. Um, and and in undergrad, I did an a alternative spring break trip to Rosebud Reservation, which was another cool experience. And I just wanted to get out and like um, interact with Native American people because there weren't, from the plains especially, because there weren't, you know, a lot of Lakota people in uh, East Lansing, Michigan, for instance. Um, so anyways, these things just kind of snowballed. And um, and then McKinley was my advisor for my uh, undergrad thesis, which was on Lakota spirituality. And during that year, um, during that year, he he told me, you know, if you really want to um, continue with this, you know, what do you want to do? Do you want to do? You, and I said, well, maybe I'll just get a job or do something. I don't know. And he said, well, do you want to continue with this? And I said, I would love to, but I don't know, you know, what kind of a job I'll get. And he said, well, uh, if you want to do Lakota studies, you have to go work with Ray DeMalley at Indiana. And so he put me in touch with Ray and I, you know, communicated with Ray and I, lo and behold, I got in to graduate school in Indiana. So I went down there and um, worked on a PhD with Ray in, um, <clears throat> in anthropology. And I had always been a big fan of Ray's work. So like having read Black Elk Speaks and having read um, The Sacred Pipe, reading the sixth grandfather, which McKinley assigned in one of my undergrad classes, it was just like a revelation. It was so interesting and just loved DeMalley's work. Um, and the Walker material I was a little bit familiar with for that undergrad senior thesis. And Ray, of course, uh, edited uh, two out of the three volumes of the, the James R. Walker material. So it just kind of fell into place. And I worked with Ray and he is just such a, a fine human being, um, just a, a brilliant guy, a great mentor. And one of the nicest people you'll ever meet. Also one of the people who knows the most about Lakota culture out there, probably. <clears throat> um, and so then in grad school, also, I was able to, you know, go out to Pine Ridge and uh, and meet a lot of Lakota people. And I worked on the Lakota language project, which is a K through 12 Lakota language curriculum project. Um, and that kind of put me in touch with people out there. And so my field work was at Pine Ridge and um working half time on that Lakota language project. And then the other half of the time I was kind of hanging out with medicine men or or ritual specialists um, and going to ceremonies and talking to people about their ceremonial life and um, 
and just uh, doing all these kind of fascinating things. And um, so that's kind of how it happened. And uh, so, so it's really an old interest for me, one that's been around since I was a little kid that um, just kind of developed and kept going and I just kept following it. And, um, and then lo and behold, here I am as, a, as an assistant professor who, who gets to study uh, Lakota culture for a living, which I feel really, really blessed and, and, and happy to be able to do and lucky. So your introduction notes that the study that the study is a reinterpretation of the ethno-historical literature on the Lakota Sioux, supplemented by your field work among the Oglaglas um, of Pine Ridge from 2008 to the present, from a Descolian animist perspective. What is this animist perspective as it relates to your conceptions of 19th century interiority and soul ontology, as well as I guess for comparative purposes, A. Irving Hallowell's work with the Ojibwe. Yeah, so so this is a big question. I'll break it down a little bit. Um, so I really um, became very interested in Philippe Descola's work a few years ago. He's incredible and also a super nice person. Um, and um, so anyways, uh, a really exceptional student of mine uh, named Nico Lamatina, he was really devouring his work, Descola's work. Um, in all of the ontological turn kind of literature, which I'll talk about in a second, but but the student Nico is just like uh, the brightest student I've ever had. He's a once in a career kind of student. He's now uh, doing a PhD at UCLA, working with uh, Alessandro Duranti. But anyway, so <clears throat> Nico kind of got me and uh, some of my other colleagues at, at the University of South Dakota interested in this ontological turn stuff, which was at the time and still is pretty cutting edge and um, um, recent kind of theoretical work in anthropology. So anyways, we would periodically get together and talk about it. We would go grab lunch and, and talk about, you know, Descola or Viveros de Castro or Tim Ingold or these other, uh, uh, um, Graham Harvey, these other kind of big names in this ontological turn, new animism stuff. <clears throat> and I was noticing a lot of parallels or, or points of intersection with the ethno-historical literature on the Lakotas, which I'm really familiar with. Um, and so a little before that, um, at my dissertation defense in the spring of 2015, uh, Jason Jackson, one of my uh, thesis uh, advisors from Indiana University, uh, he mentioned to me that I should really look at the work of A. Irving Hallowell because there were a lot of um, there, there was a lot of relevance there with my dissertation work. Um, and I had read Hallowell as an undergrad in a class with with Dr. McKinley, um, and was really taken by it and just thought, oh yeah, this is this is a really good way to think about these things, and this is fascinating work. Um, but I, you know, things had happened, life got in the way and I was doing other things and I kind of um, hadn't really thought a whole lot about it since then. Um, so anyway, so so all of these, so I started to look back at Hallowell and all of these things were kind of sloshing around in my head at the time, Descola's work, Hallowell's work and the Lakota uh, ethnography and ethnohistory. So Descola is kind of under the umbrella of what we would call the ontological turn, which is this really kind of diverse trend in the humanities and in the social sciences that is kind of generally about decentering um, the kind of privileged position of humans and expanding the notion of personhood uh, to include non-human life forms um, and exploring the kind of the human non-human interaction uh, and relationship um, that, that we see in ethnography around the world. So, and in, in this ontological turn, again, it's really broad and really diverse, but the, the area that interests me the most is what you might call the exploration of ethno-ontologies. Um, so expanding the notion of personhood and really kind of exploring the interface of nature and culture in various kind of ethnographic and regional settings. 
So that's a little bit generally about the ontological turn and Descola's work is a part of that, I would say. But at the heart of it is really a reassessment, uh, a reevaluation, a restoration of a modernized concept of animism, which is in, in the new, which we call the new animism, but which is stripped of its problematic social evolutionary connotation. So, so the animism of the past, people by by people like uh, uh, Tyler and Fraser, um, was well, we would call it today racist um, because they said you know it was in the social evolutionary framework in the late 1800s. And they said, you know, if you believe that uh, objects or animals possess a soul or a spirit, well, that makes you less. That makes you primitive. That makes you uncivilized. And so the new animism is saying, whoa, 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 we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. This idea that the core or the kernel of the idea of animism, that that non-human objects or animals or, or what have you, meteorological phenomenon, places can have a soul or a spirit comparable to that of human beings that idea is very legitimate and, um, and we see it all over the world uh, in different cultures in terms of their philosophy or their theosophy or, or uh, spirituality or religious beliefs. But then to take that next step and say, you know, well, this makes you less, that's the crazy step that, that we don't, we don't take today. Um, but, but the idea again, that, um, um, that non-human objects can have a soul or a spirit, that is certainly a legitimate idea. Um, so that's when I when I use the term animism, that's what I'm what I'm referring to is this I, this belief that uh, that objects, animals, uh, meteorological phenomena can have a soul or a spirit. Um, so so Descola's kind of key work is called Beyond Nature and Culture, and it was published in English in 2013 with the University of Chicago Press. And basically, he kind of challenges the nature culture distinction, which is which is central to Western epistemologies and worldviews. Um, <clears throat> And he starts off by showing how all cultures that we know anything about uh, through ethnography or through history, they make a distinction in one way or another in their own ways between what uh, Descola calls interiority and physicality. And these are purposefully kind of vague, inclusive terms to kind of capture the diversity of cultures uh, uh, around the world. So interiority is the soul, the spirit, uh, the personality, the subjectivity, the mind, will, intentionality, all these kinds of ideas, the non-corporeal essence of a person. And physicality is the body, the manifest form, uh, the characteristic dispositions and behaviors associated uh, with or allowed by a particular external form. <clears throat> so Descola uses these ideas, interiority and physicality, to then kind of define and illustrate four ontological orientations that uh, he has found throughout the world and all the ethnography that he exhaustively you know, has researched. Uh, he just knows the literature so well all over the world. It's incredible. Um, and he does it in kind of a plus minus kind of way, like Levi Strauss, who was his mentor. He's kind of the protege of Claude Levi Strauss. Um, so basically these different ontologies kind of combine or arrange interiority and physicality in different ways. So he says the West uh, is characterized by um, naturalism. Naturalism, which would be an ontological schema that recognizes a dissimilarity of interiority um, and a similarity of physicality. So from the naturalist perspective, you know, we're all made of the same stuff. Our bodies are made of the same stuff, cells, skin, hair, etc. Um, but the, the interiority is different. Only humans, or maybe some corporations too, have a soul or a spirit. Um, so Descolian animism is the, the reverse of that. It's the opposite of that. So it's an ontology where 
there's a continuity or similarity of interiority and a discontinuity or dissimilarity of physicality. So for an example, the only thing different between humans and bison is that bison have a different body than humans do. And that, that body allows them to live in a particular way and to eat certain things that humans don't eat and to live in particular ways, right? Whereas uh, we both have the potential to have a soul or a spirit, an interiority, a personality. Uh, we can uh, potential to communicate with one another, both considered persons in that way. So in this, in Discolian animism, the eternal essence of a person is the soul or the spirit, not the body. Um, all, you know, all persons, they can be human or non-human. It's like the person category um, extends beyond the human. It's not just human. Um, so persons are subjectivities with selfhood that is comparable to, to that of humans. So I noticed a couple of things that Descola really doesn't talk a lot about the Lakotas in his book. He just gives a few examples. So that was kind of like, I guess the charter for my book was like, let's take this lens of animism, new animism, Descolian animism, and let's um, bring that to bear on the Lakota ethno history um, and the, the Lakota ethnographic record. Um, but I also noticed some parallels as I was reading Descola between his work and Hallowell's work. So A. Irving Hallowell is a really important uh, Americanist anthropologist. He worked with the Barrens River Ojibwe people of Manitoba, mostly in the kind of 1930s and 40s, give or take. Um, and he's really kind of the pioneer, or the godfather, I think, of this ontological turn stuff and the new animism stuff. And particularly his later works. Um, the classic one being Ojibwe, uh, Ojibwa Ontology, Behavior, and Worldview, which was first, pu first published in 1960. Um, and it's become a classic in the kind of literature that, that looks at, that reassesses animism. Um, and so Hallowell uses the term other than human persons to talk about the kind of the non-human life forms that, that populated and shared the universe with the Barrens River Ojibwe's. Um, and he was really kind of, I think, the, as far as I know, the first scholar to explore this kind of notion of expanding personhood to include non-humans, this kind of inclusive worldview or relational ontology. Um, and so Hallowell says that the action of persons is really the kind of the major key to understanding the Ojibwe worldview. Um, and so Hallowell's really most in interested in the Ojibwe. So he would be doing what, what kind of we would say ethno-ontology, which is really what my book is, is like, really kind of looking at what's the, you know, what does is, what is animism look like from a Lakota perspective, for instance. Um, but Descola's project is much grander in the kind of comparative anthropological sense where he's saying, like, all over the world we find these four ontologies. And so, of course, the work... Uh, in Beyond Nature and Culture, the parts that were most uh, relevant to me was the, his studies of animism. Um, but so the, the, the basic, I guess, thing to get back to like the question, <laughs> I was trying to answer all the different parts, but, but Descolian animism basically is this commonality of interiority, which is at the heart of animist ontologies. Um, it allows for the extension of sociality to non-humans, that humans can have social interactions with, uh, that humans can have social interactions with non-humans. Um, and so it, uh, it abolishes the divide between nature and culture. It's all of the same, the same kind. There is no distinction between nature and culture. Like there's no real distinction between the supernatural and the natural. It's just all natural. Um, and um, in animist ontologies or animist societies, um, non-human species or tribes, Descola calls them collectives or social groups, they operate according to the same basic principles and they're structured in the same basic ways 
as human collectives or human social groups. So they have religious leaders, they have families, they have hunters, they have warriors, they have um, women and children and, and the elderly and, and et cetera, et cetera. They live in villages. They do all the same things that humans do, except they're not human. Um, and so in, in animist societies, the physicality or the body is what distinguishes human beings from other life forms and also what distinguishes some human groups from others. So there are as many tribe species or as many collectives as there are different physical forms and kind of the associated behavior patterns uh, they permit. And importantly, in animist societies, there's this capacity for transformation. So the idea is that the physicality, the body is transient. It's, it's, uh, it's changeable. Um, it's, it's likened to clothing in a lot of the, these cultures. It's an envelope that covers a common interiority and it's subject to change in certain uh, domains of existence, which, which, descri- uh, which explains why transformation is such a kind of key thing in, uh, in animist ontologies. So that's a little bit about Discolian animism. Can you elaborate on situated uh, animism in the context of uh, uh, Lakota Waka um, or uh, Wachakea, as well as notions of uh, human, non-human uh, collectives like Oyate vis-a-vis vis- kinship? Yeah, I think I can. I hope I can. Um, so again, this is a, a big question. There's a lot going on here, so I'm going to take it in chunks. But um, so Waka is the kind of the central religious concept in Lakota culture or Lakota spirituality. Um, it's been translated or glossed as sacred or holy, but really a better way to think about it is kind of like mysterious, powerful, incomprehensible. Um, it's the kind of the life force or energy that animates all things and that unites all things. Um, um, it's abstract. It's in an impersonal force, but it's responsible for all the kind of, for everything that, that, that happens in the world, I guess you could say. Um, and everyone has a little bit of, of it in them, the kind of the spark of creation if, or the spark of life, if you want to call it the seed of life. Uh, but some people have a little bit more. They're the medicine men. They're the, um, the ritual specialists. Some places have a little bit more like the Black Hills or Bear, uh, Bears, Bear Butte or something like that. Um, so everybody has a little bit of it, but some things have a little bit more. It's been compared to the mana concept in Polynesian cultures. Um, anyway, so that's a little bit about Wakan. It's a really important concept in Lakota um, spirituality and ceremonial life. So, so basically the idea of situated animism, I thought of as a kind of um, antidote to the, what, I, what I call the naive animism of Tyler and Fraser, right? The people who kind of developed the idea of animism as Tyler and then his student Fraser also carried it on. But basically they said that, quote unquote, animists believe that all things have a soul or a spirit or an interiority to use Descola's term. Um, and this is a very kind of dogmatic thing. Everything has a solar spirit. And Hallowell also recognized that this was a problem with those kind of old versions of animism. And in fact, in his work, he rarely used the word animism, Hallowell. Um, so anyway, so I use the idea of situated animism to kind of counter that. And basically it means that, you know, not everything has a solar or a spirit, but everything has the potential to have a solar or a spirit. And that experience is kind of the ultimate test. Um, the litmus test to decide if something has agency, if something has personhood. Real experience too, practical experience in many cases, not just kind of spiritual experience, although spiritual experience can also be practical. But So the classic example of this comes from Hallowell. Um, 
and he's he's sitting on um, he's sitting on the bank of a river with one of his uh, Ojibwe consultants and elder, and and Hallowell says, "So do all of these rocks? Are all of these rocks really alive?" And the the elder kind of stops and thinks about it for a while, and then he says, "No, but some of them are." So I, I just love that example, right? Uh, um, uh, it's it's classic, and you'll read it in lots of the stuff that kind of looks at animism. Um, again, so it's the, the the potential is there for a similar interiority, um, but not necessarily that everything has you know has an interiority, has a solar spirit, but that it has the potential for it. Um, so it makes you look at the world differently and respect kind of the natural world or the non-human world. Uh, I think in a way, if you if you uh, feel or believe that you know there's the potential that, that non-humans can also possess souls or spirits. Um, so yeah, so the situated animism that, I, that is characteristic, I say, of, of the Lakotas and particularly the kind of the bison hunting days, of the 19th century, the traditional Lakota lifestyle, um, it's not a set of dogmatic concepts or creeds, but it's a set of experiences that's based on individual and collective knowledge that is accumulated, that is intergenerational. Um, and it's also really practical in terms of kind of um, hunter-gatherer animist cosmologies and ontologies. Um, it's bound to experience. It's bound to perception. And other people like Tim Ingold and uh, Rain Willerslev have also talked about these things in a really productive way that I that I like and that I've used in my work. Um, so basically, Lakota animism, if you want to call it that, um, it was always open to adjustment and adaptation. I always say <clears throat> if there's one thing that's perhaps most characteristic of Lakota culture, it's their ability to adapt to to they have this, this immense capacity for practical adaptation. Um, <clears throat> so basically Lakota animism was kind of in an ongoing dialectical relationship with everyday experience um, and particular relationships with other tribe species or Oyates um, really resulted from historical circumstances and from experience. And again, it could be uh, intergenerational passed down from, from previous experiences and uh, previous generations. Um, so yeah, that's that's what I was getting at, I guess, with the idea of situated animism. Can you also explain Lakota uh, Nagi as well as its relationship to emitted potency? Sure. So this one is particularly kind of difficult because there's very little in the literature about these kind of really esoteric ideas about the soul or the spirit. Um, we do know that uh, in 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 Lakota culture, the idea was that there are at least three, maybe four souls. And in some, some sources, you see more than that. Um, and they all kind of did different things, right? And this is common in other cultures around the world, too, the idea that there are multiple souls. Um, a triune approach uh, to souls is actually kind of the most common, I think, around the world. But anyways, um, the other problem is that a lot of Lakota people in the literature and today kind of equate more or less some of these forms of solar spirit now. So it's hard to differentiate. They kind of, you could gloss them in, in the same way a lot of times. And then um, with Nahila, it's especially problematic because we only see it in one source really, which is the James R. Walker material, which I'll talk more about in a minute. But so that makes it kind of questionable on one level, but I'll, I'll talk more about that in a second. But so Nahi is one of the aspects of the soul from, from Lakota perspectives. Um, it can be translated kind of as generally as soul or spirit or ghost. It's likened to a shadow, person's shadow. Um, it's kind of the most fundamental in terms of Descola's idea of interiority or 
Um, Eduardo Viveros de Castro, who's another big name in the ontological turn literature, he would refer to it as the true soul, the pure, formal, subjective singularity, the abstract mark of a person. Um, so it's the inner kind of characteristic, enduring essence of a person, Nahi. And Arthur Amiot, who is the artist who did the cover of my book, uh, but he was also uh, an educator. Um, he taught in tribal schools for many years. He, uh, he was also a medicine man in his own right, a practitioner for many years uh, at Pine Ridge and in, in the South Dakota, in, in Sioux country, if you want to call it that. He describes the Nahi as comparable to the ego, as self-awareness or self-consciousness. So for me, Nahi is kind of the fundamental kind of soul that we think of that, you know, kind of it looks like the person, but it's not physical. It's 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 non-corporeal, but it has the same kind of characteristics, dispositions. It's like um, it's the kind of it is the essence of the person. So then Nahila is the second one that, that you mentioned. And that's the really problematic one, because, again, we only see it in the James R. Walker material. Um, Walker was the Pine Ridge Agency physician um, from 1896 to 1914. And he did extensive interviews with uh, Lakota elders and medicine men at Pine Ridge at that, and during that time period. And his works are the single most important source on traditional Lakota spirituality in the 19th century. <clears throat> so while he's the only one who mentions Nahila, aside from some people who also are you know, building on Walker's foundation, um, even though that's the case, that doesn't necessarily rule it out either because we have to remember that traditional Lakota belief in a ritual, especially in the bison hunting era, uh, was dream-based. It was revelatory. It was highly idiosyncratic. It was resistant to dogmatism. Um, so, you know, there's room for, for, you know, idiosyncratic ideas and concepts here too. Um, uh, but anyway, so, so his consultants around that time uh, define Nahila as like a spirit or soul-like or spiritish. Um, and Walker himself defined it as the immaterial self of irrational things. So to me, that irrational things means non-human things, I think, based on my other research. Uh, but so anyways, he said it was an old Lakota belief that, that each thing except the spirits, the Wakhan themselves, and humans had something like this Nahila, this, this something like a spirit. And linguistically, the only difference between Nahi and Nahila is that is the la suffix, which is a diminutive. So those definitions, soul-like, make sense. It's it's the little Nahi or the little soul. It's something like a human soul, but it's slightly different. Um, so George Sword, who was, a, was an Ogallala around that time as well at Pine Ridge, who was one of Walker's main consultants, um, he kind of, he says that Nahila is the life breath or animating soul of animals and the smoke of inanimate things. So for him, it seems like the distinction between Nahi and Nahila was that um, it was the animate versus inanimate or maybe human versus non-human. Um, and the human versus non-human, uh, the human versus non-human distinction is, is important in the literature. It was first mentioned by James Owen Dorsey, the ethnologist, um, uh, with the Bureau of American Ethnology. Um, and he says that, that among the Siouan tribes, that the important distinction wasn't natural versus supernatural, but that it was uh, human versus non-human, or he, he said superhuman, actually. So anyway, so I hypothetically define it, Nahila, as non-human spirit or interiority. Um, emitted potency, that's another tough one. The, the, the term is tun, um, the emitted potency of anything, the mysterious or wakan aspect of anything the non-corporeal essential element 
So again, there's a lot of overlap between these, these terms and it's, it's really complicated. Um, but it's also the word for birth or to give birth. Um, things that move or are thought of as being alive, they participate in this process of continuous birth, which is really kind of the, the term for that. Um, it's the sprout, the emission, the emergence from a seed or germ, the seed or miracle of life that results from the union of kind of complementary male and female principles or creative forces or energies. Um, so in any case, I think that, you know, we kind of, we, we lack the data, the historical data, and maybe we lack the kind of very, very um, fine distinctions in vocabulary in English to really differentiate between all these complex notions in English. Um, and really, maybe there wasn't too much of a semantic difference either in Lakota between these kind of different ideas of interiority. But in any case, in my fieldwork, I haven't been able to find anybody um, today who who knows all of those terms, especially Navila. You don't find really people who know that uh, 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 unless, again, they know the Walker material. So um, in any case, I think that the, the bottom line is that just as a human has a body and a soul, um, so do objects and so do animals. And in all cases, the soul or the interiority is the immaterial kind of enduring essence. Can you also elaborate on examples of Lakota ritual, particularly the acts of rock painting and cloth offerings in uh, Wachakea? Sure. <clears throat> um, so most Lakota rituals come from vision experiences. Again, it's very dream-based, very revelatory, idiosyncratic, um, constantly changing and evolving, resistant to dogmatism. Um, most accounts will say that the core ceremonies of the Lakotas came directly from white buffalo woman or Pate Samui, who is uh, a non-human spirit emissary sent from the star people to the Lakotas in, the, in a time of famine. And she brought the gift of the sacred pipe. And while she was with the people, she also taught them the sacred ceremonies, four or seven, depending on what source you're, you're reading uh, or, 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 who's, or who's telling you. Um, so anyway, so... Um, some of the ceremonies are calendrical that happen at a regular time on the calendar, but mostly Lakota ceremonies are more life crisis rituals, um, like, like healing rituals, fertility rituals, hunting rituals, and also different ceremonies associated with the life cycle. So birth, um, naming, puberty, death, uh, entry into a men's society or, or whatever, or a dream society, these kinds of things. Um, probably the oldest Lakota ceremony, ceremonies are the Inipi or sweat lodge, and the Hambaleche Api, or the, the Vision Quest. Um, the Wiwayan Wachipi, the Sundance, is thought of today as kind of the most characteristic. Uh, it's a calendrical ceremony. But, um, but really, that's a more recent one that, um, uh, that the Lakotas adopted as they transitioned to Plains life. Um, so let's see. In terms of, you asked about rock painting, and you asked about cloth offerings in relation to Wachekia. Um, so Wachekia, that's a really, really important concept to unpack. Um, really central to Lakota ritual. Um, it was translated by missionaries as prayer. Um, and that's the common way it's understood by many people today. So it's the stem is uh, chea, which means to cry, weep, or wail. Chekia means to cry to or for someone or something. So it's making yourself uh, pitiable in front of the powers that are greater than, than you, that are greater than humans, to try to get them to recognize you and help you out and share some of their wealth or knowledge or share some of their, their blessings with you. Um, so uh, 
so I argue anyways that that prayer isn't necessarily the best way or the only way to think about Wachekia, but rather to think about it as addressing a relative. Uh, or maybe that prayer and addressing a relative really weren't semantically so distinct in, in the Lakota mind. Um, so basically, Wachekia or, or prayer or addressing a relative, this is the link between human and non-human. And kinship is the idiom. Kinship is always central in anything to do with Lakota culture. Kinship is um, the, the foundation. And kinship and spirituality are almost like indistinguishable in most cases. They're just so intertwined. Um, you can't study one without studying the other. Um, so by, by addressing non-human spirit persons as relatives, humans are drawing them into the web of kinship, and along with all of the reciprocal duties, obligations, and rights that are associated with kinship. Um, so in, in the Lakota um, understanding of the world, humans were at the bottom of the the hierarchy in terms of knowledge and power. Animals were more knowledgeable and powerful than, than humans and even more knowledgeable and powerful than animals were the kind of spirit beings, the wakan, um, the spirits. So this flips the kind of Judeo-Christian understanding where humans are at the top of creation and they're going to, you know, um, dominate the rest of creation. In the Lakota worldview, it's the flip and humans are the younger brothers and sisters. They're the least knowledgeable and powerful. So they need to rely on their, their, spirit relatives to help them um, to, to kind of share the wealth, so to speak, with humans in terms of the knowledge and power that spirit beings and animal spirits have. Um, so basically, Wachekia, prayer, addressing a relative, along with sacrifice, along with offerings and ceremonial painting, ceremonially adorning objects, this function to subjectivize and personalize non-human things. Um, so it was, this was all part of the technology of ritual, you might say. Um, it opens the lines of communication between the human and the non-human. Ella Deloria says, Wachekia is the open sesame for all things between human beings, but also between human beings and the gods or the spirits, whatever you want to call them. Um, um, so these, these ritual dynamics, I call them, they were all part of addressing a relative in the proper manner, uh, especially one who's more uh, important or more... Uh, I don't know if important is the right word, but who's more powerful and knowledgeable, knowledgeable than you are. So the example to address a, uh, a, the stone spirit, you know, you might find a suitable stone. You might paint it in the appropriate way with red paint or something to sacralize it. You might offer it tobacco or smoke. Um, you'd address it as a relative, usually grandfather. Um, by doing this in the proper prescribed way, you have to do it in the correct way, in the correct um, sequence. The stone is transformed basically into an altar. Um, and the stone spirit, I guess, comes and, uh, in, and embodies and uh, animates that stone, that common stone. Um, it becomes an altar. The spirits come and hear your prayers, your desires, your needs. This is still a really uh, firm belief today in the sweat lodge, for instance, uh, where the, the stone spirits are prayed to. The idea is that I've heard many people say, many Lakota people say that, you know, when you do this the right way, when you sing and pray in the sweat lodge in this traditional Lakota way, the spirits like it. They come, they hear, they listen, they will help. Um, so there's this real belief that if you do these things the right way, that the spirits actually do come, they do witness the ceremonies um, and they're experienced then subjectively or existentially um, by the ritual gathering. So the stone, the common stone becomes a medium for communication between the human and the non-human. Can you provide examples as well of Lakota conceptions of metamorphosis, both non-human and human, that indicated great power. Yeah, so 
as I mentioned before, this, the common feature or one common feature in animist societies is that physicality is fluid and unreliable, that it's capable of transformation. Um, the interiority, the soul, the spirit is the true enduring vital essence of a person. Um, and I said before, too, that the physicality is likened to clothing, um, an envelope um, uh, that is changeable and removable. So so in a lot of uh, in a lot of these languages, the word for skin is the same as the word for clothing. So in Lakota, the word ha, it can be translated as skin or hide or bark, the outer casing or shell of anything or also as clothes or clothing. Um, so metamorphosis was kind of messing with this physical form and changing up this physical form, this, this physicality that what Descola calls physicality. Um, it allowed for interaction and relationship and exchange between persons, whether human or non-human, who had entirely different bodies. It was also an indexable, indexical um, feature of the person category that you know, all persons were capable of transformation, whether they're human or non-human. Um, but the, they, the transformations didn't necessarily always happen in everyday waking life or actuality, but they happened in, um, in the spirit realm, I guess you could say, or in ritual or in dreams or visions. And they, they were um, indicative of power. So really the most powerful people, whether human or non-human, were capable of these kinds of transformations. Um, in, in the book, I say that these, these ritual transformations mostly take place in virtual space. Um, and I give the examples of mythology, dreams, visions, and ritual. And they often involve altered states of consciousness. So the vision quest is a really good example. So there are all these different ritual dynamics that are more or less universal cross-culturally. But in the Lakota case, the specific ones for the vision quests are fasting. You don't eat, you don't drink for a set number of days or nights. Isolation, you go away from human habitation. Exhaustion, you're tired, you're, you're praying, you're singing, you're not eating or drinking, you're out in the hot sun or whatever it might be. Um, sensory deprivation and overload, focusing of the mind or the will on the particular task at hand, etc. All these kinds of things, which I call ritual dynamics. Um, through these things, the vision seeker or the lamenter uh, achieves an altered state of consciousness, um, entering into what this realm that I'm calling the virtual in the book, but which it's really kind of the world of the human mind, the, the world of imagination, of, of potential or potentiality. Um, the spirit world is a good way to think about it. Um, so in this state or in this realm, right, a human might interact with non-human persons, with non-human interiorities, um, and they might take various forms. Um, so for example, kind of some, to, to talk in some classic kind of vision tropes um, from reading a, a number of different narratives of vision quest experiences. So, you know, Persons in the form of human beings might come to the vision quester on horseback from the West, let's say. Um, they come down, they address the lamenter. The lamenter is calling for, the human is calling for, you know, recognize me, see me, pity me. I want to communicate with non with a non-human, with a spirit. Um, so they might come from the West. They might uh, then transform into a swallow. And anybody growing up in Lakota culture would know that the swallow is an emissary of the thunder beings of the West. Also, that they came from the West would be a hint that, like, no, this is a, a dream of the West, a dream of the Thunder Beings. Um, then the human might also transform into a swallow. Again, in this kind of virtual space, in this ritual context, that is, adopt the physicality and the attendant perspective of the swallow. Um, and they might all kind of fly off together as swallows to a teepee in the clouds in the West. Um, and there they might go into the teepee and sit down and, and counsel with 
who with the thunder beings and they might take the shape of humans or they might, you know, um, take the form of birds or whatever it might be. Um, and then after the council, basically it's like the human is adopted into the Thunderbird nation, the Thunderbird tribe, and is kind of an emissary for them uh, among humans on earth. And then the human was, would be brought back to the vision quest site and transforms back into his, his human form. So that's one example from like a vision experience. Another example would be kind of like, um, bear men or bear dreamers. And some great examples come from Thomas Tyon, who is an Ogallala, who's in the Walker material. And bear, bear men were recognized by the bear spirit in visions. And then they had these, these powers to heal, for instance, but also to ritually transform into the bear and they could perform various miraculous deeds. And, um, and when you're reading about these things in, in the Lakota language, the word that people use is aya, which means to become. So the idea is that these human beings really are bears. They're not humans anymore. And it's it's interesting that they call them bear men. Again, so like the, the cover of the book, it's like this the the line between human and non-human is blurred very much in these kind of ritual uh, spaces in the ritual context. Um, so part of the transformation might involve, you know, donning the the physicality or the clothing of a bear. So you'd wear a bear hide. Um, and it was usually performed by kind of ritual specialists. Um um, so as I mentioned, again, remember the word for ha, uh, for skin is ha, which can also be clothed, uh, clothing. Um, and then all people transform throughout the life cycle, too, as we grow and develop. And kind of the final transformation that everyone goes through is death, which which is uh, kind of the permanent dissociation of interiority and physicality. So so that's a little bit about uh, metamorphosis. Again, we see it all over the place in the Lakota literature, also in the literature on the Ojibwe and, and a lot of other tribes in Native North America. How did the concept of virtuality help you frame Lakota conceptions of exchanges between humans and non-humans? <clears throat> yeah, so uh, I use this concept virtuality. It comes from my reading of Bruce Kapfer's work. Um, he develops it from the work of Bergson, Langer, um, Suzanne Langer, and uh, Gilles Deleuze. But Kaffer is also really, really influenced by Victor Turner, who I'm also really into, whose work on ritual is just amazing, incredible, pioneering. And so I think basically what Kaffer is doing is combining Turner's ideas about liminality and ritual um, with this concept of virtuality. Um, and he's using it to analyze ritual. Um, I think Kaffer's work on ritual, and he also does a lot of good work on sorcery witchcraft. Anyways, I think it's some of the best stuff out there right now. So you should all check it out if you haven't uh, if you hadn't haven't heard of him. Um, so for Kapfer, virtuality is a real, fully lived existential reality that people subjectively experience, but it's different than actuality. But it's a part of actuality. Um, so it's not separate or demarcated from everyday waking life. It's just different. Um, so he says, like depth is to surface. Um, and it's different in two key ways. So virtuality is this kind of, he would say, phantasmagoric, self-contained, imaginal space about imagery and imagination. Um, psychological, uh, spiritual? Yes, I think, anyways. But it's this, he says, a dynamic or plane of imminence that allows for all kinds of potentialities of human experience to emerge and actualize. So anything is possible in virtuality, and you can right wrongs that are going on in the, in the actual world. You can slow down the, the kind of uh, breakneck tempo of the everyday world. So that's the second part of virtuality is that it's a technology for doing that, for slowing down the tempo 
of everyday life, for stopping things on either side for a while, um, um, suspending some of, uh, of what's going on in, in lived reality so that a ritual specialist can kind of tinker with the dynamics of how the, the, the world works, of how, you know, why is somebody sick? You know, I, I'm going to stop everything right now in, the actu- in actuality and, and um, figure this out. And, and it has a real regenerative uh, effect or force uh, that, that lots of people have noticed uh, in, when talking about ritual. So uh, the second part, the slowing down of actuality, and like this is a ritual space, is what it's saying. It's mark- demarcating ritual space uh, and time. Uh, he calls it the descent into the virtual, and there are lots of examples of this. Like in Lakota, for instance, uh, medicine men or, or ritual practitioners will feign four times in a lot of ceremonies. You do things four times before you actually do it. So um, like if you're, if you're presenting a medicine man with a pipe, which means you want this person's help, you offer, he won't take it until the fourth time. And this is kind of an example of this descent into the virtual slowing down of, of reality to recognize that we're entering into this kind of different realm, if you want to call it that, or different space of ritual. Um, so, so anyway, so virtuality generally, I guess it's, it's a technology. It's, it's like magic in that it's a technology that is, that, that humans can use to alter reality. And it's, uh, it's not separate from reality, but it's a part of reality, but we can use it to have a positive influence on the world around us. Um, so really I was kind of, I was searching for an idea that could explain or could help us understand the space or the interface where interaction between human and non-human takes place, um, where human people or interiorities interact with animal or spirit people or interiorities, where those important kinship relationships of exchange and dependence were established. Um, and again, Lakota people might use the English uh, spirit world to to talk about this space, but I use virtual um, in this book, anyways. And it's definitely an imaginal space. It's different from actuality, but it's also right. It's also spiritual or psychological. Uh, it's a spiritual or psychological place or realm. Um, and actually, lately I've been thinking about this space in comparison to ideas uh, about the astral plane in, in Western esoteric traditions. And I've been really interested in kind of comparing Western esoteric traditions about these kinds of things to uh, the Lakota ethnography and ethnohistory. So again, it's a world of human imagination, potentiality, but that makes it no less real and impactful. Um, so Hallowell says this too, that you know experiences in the realms of mythology, dreams and visions and ritual, which I'm calling virtual realms, that they're no less real or impactful in terms of the cumulative self-related experience of a person or of a community, frankly. And Ella Deloria mentions this too, when she says that in traditional Lakota life, that the world of the dream or the world of ceremony, that these, these realms, these spaces were more important, more effective, more motivating than actuality or, uh, or everyday lived reality. Um, so that's, that's how I'm thinking about these things. I'm, uh, uh, using this idea of virtuality to try to think about this space where, where human and non-humans come together. Can you elaborate a little bit um, on that, those last couple remarks? Like uh, what are the effects, for example, of Thunderbirds, a Thunderbird nation, and you've already alluded to the white Buffalo woman on Lakota actualities. And similarly, what were the effects of dreams and visions on everyday Lakota life? Okay. Yeah. So, um, so the thunder beings or the thunderbirds, these were the kind of the terrifying creator destroyer figures of the West. And I mentioned them a little bit when I talked about the vision quest example. 
So, so each, each direction was associated with particular spirits, with particular animals, birds, qualities, colors, etc. Um, and the Thunderbirds were the most powerful in a lot of ways. Um, so their glance or their stare was lightning. Wakian is, is Thunderbird. Wakian, Duwampi, that's the, the stare or the glare of the, the thunder beings. That's lightning. Their call or their voice was thunder. Wakian, Hotumpi. Hotumpi is the characteristic call or cry of an animal. So, uh, or a non-human, I guess you could say. Um, so uh, their glance was lightning. Their call was thunder. They were associated with both creation and destruction because thunderstorms on the plains can come up out of nowhere and can be very severe and uh, damaging. But then after those storms, the rain comes, which brings life and makes everything green and grow and feeds the bison and all these kinds of things. So they were complicated creator destroyers, right? They were associated with both destruction and creation. Um, And again, like living in a teepee out on the the plains, you know, as the traditional Lakota hunter-gatherer lifestyle was... You know, you didn't have much protection from these storms that could kind of come out of nowhere. It usually came out of the West. Um, so the Thunder Beings were really, you know, respected, feared even, um, definitely feared. They were associated with warfare, which was one of the, the main male occupations of 19th century Lakota life. Um, so, you know, getting a, a blessing or a dream from the Thunder Beings could give you a lot of prowess and abilities in war, which would make you a big name for yourself and your community. Um but it also meant if you had a vision of the thunder beings that you had to become Heokha, uh, oftentimes, which is the contrary, the sacred clown, however you want to think about it. But all these holy things are both kind of creative and destructive. They're dangerous. Um, they, they have potential to do good, but they also have potential to do bad because human beings are involved and um, they can uh, they can you know go either way. They can do good things or bad things with their with their decisions and what they choose to do in their actions. Um, so people didn't always want to become Hayoka. So a thunder, a dream of the thunder beings of the West was not always a good thing. Uh, it could come with demands, you know, and prescriptions and proscriptions that were difficult, but anyways, black elk, crazy horse, they were both dreamers of the West. Um, a lot of other kind of famous historical figures were dreamers of the West. Um, so that's a little bit about, uh, about thunder beings. Um, so in terms of Oyate, in terms of kind of uh, the Thunderbird nation, I've already mentioned the term Oyate. It means uh, people, nation, or tribe. So uh, I argue in general in the book that that non-human collectives or tribe species or whatever you want to call them, non-human social groups, they were thought of as communities, as nations or tribes, as Oyate, as people, nations, or tribes, just like human social groups. Um, <clears throat> so I think we shouldn't just think about them as one kind of master thunder being spirit, Although sometimes seeing it this way is useful and we see that in mythology a lot, it seems like there's just one. But in other in other stories, too, there's also, you know, families of thunder beings. Some are older, some are younger, some are male, some are female, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so anyway, so, so I feel like we should really be thinking about these things in terms of kinship, which, again, is the foundation of Lakota life um, as families or extended families, as Oyate comprised of a number of Teoshbaes or lodge groups extended family groups or bands. So that's why I call it the Thunderbird Nation. And you can think about it in all, all other kinds of animals too. So like Chunkawakan Oyate is the horse nation. Khatanka um, Oyate or Pte Oyate probably is more common. The Buffalo Nation, right? The, the Buffalo people. Um, <clears throat> white Buffalo woman, Pte uh, Samwin, she is absolutely central in Lakota belief and ritual and ceremonial life. She is the great intermediary that was sent by the star people um, 
as a, as a falling star. So one of her names is Wolchbe, which, which means falling star, according to Walker's consultants. Um, so she was sent to save the Lakotas in a time of great need. She, she brought the sacred pipe, the most significant Lakota ritual symbol, religious symbol. And she also taught the people the core ceremonies and really taught the people culture, taught the people how to be Lakota. Um, she taught the people about ritual, how to use it as a technology to communicate with non-humans. Um, she established the link between humans and non-humans, basically the relationship or kinship between the people and the spirits. Um, and her potency, her spiritual essence was uh, considered to be in the smoke of the sacred pipe so that when when people got together and smoked the pipe communally and prayed, that the smoke takes their prayers and their words and their desires up to the heavens, to the spirits, um, through the intermediary of white buffalo woman, and then that the, the spirits will hear those prayers and, and act upon them. So really, she's totally central to Lakota myth and ceremonial life, and she's still personified at a lot of sun dances today. So in the beginning of a sun dance, a lot of times on the first day, um, the a young woman is chosen who has really good, strong character to um, to enact the white buffalo woman, and she uh, this this woman will carry the sacred pipe bundle into the camp in a ceremonial way while she's singing uh, the sacred song that uh, the white buffalo woman sang when she came to the people many, many, many years ago. Um, so in this way, the white buffalo woman is still subjectively experienced by many Lakota people who participate in the Sundance. How do physicality, toape, and eminence operate in Lakota rituals? In your response, can you touch on uh, the roles of uh, altars, sensory deprivation, fasting, etc., in such ritual? Yeah. Um, let me go. So I didn't answer about dreams. I'll do that really quickly. So um, the effect of dreams. So like many Native Americans, um, the Lakotas were and are really a dream conscious people. Um, again, they were key avenues for interaction with between human and non-human um, and experiences and dreams were continuous with other cumulative self-related experience. Um, they had a determinative effect on life um, and dream and vision were really the same in a way the hambala or hambale was the word for both. Uh, but, but a person in that culture could tell the import of a dream if it was a sacred dream or just kind of a regular dream, I guess. Um, but they would uh, guide and direct the lives of individuals and communities. They were the impetus for ritual and innovation um, they provided that space again, that lim liminal or virtual space, uh, where humans and non-humans could come together and speak on common ground, for instance. Um, and, um, uh, so all kinds of knowledge was transmitted through dreams too, not just kind of spiritual esoteric stuff, but also practical knowledge about medicines or technologies or about, you know, the, the, the bundles that were going to be made for, particular dream societies or men's societies or things like that. So dreams were central uh, as well uh, on everyday Lakota life, not just in the kind of the spiritual realm. How, uh, how to physicality, to Wampi, et cetera. Um, so physicality, the outer form, it's oftentimes altered or even abandoned in ritual. Um, so all these ritual dynamics that I've mentioned before, fasting, isolation, sensory deprivation and overload, uh, music, chanting, Etc. All these things are used to alter the state of consciousness to similar to a meditative or ecstatic or trance state. It's not like, you know, you're going to see like Grateful Dead bears around the corner or whatever, but, uh, but it's, they're, they're done to alter the state of consciousness. And again, it's not a, always an extreme kind of alteration. Um, but these things are done to kind of 
have the, the interiority lose the body in a way, um, going into the spirit. I've heard people say that about their Sundance experiences. They, they, the, the, the goal of it is to go into the spirit, um, and forget about the physicality in a way. So ritually donning the clothing or, or skin of an animal, for instance, might help to induce some of these altered states of consciousness or achieve a ritual transformation, like the example of the, the bear man, the bear dreamer. Um, but in most cases, like in the vision quest that I talked about a little bit ago, um, the interiority kind of leaves the physicality or travels. Um, the physicality doesn't necessarily transform, but the spirit leaves the physicality. Um, Duan means uh, to stare or glare. It's the, the emitted potency of something. Uh, it's like a shot of spiritual or occult energy or force or power, kind of like electricity. It's likened to electricity sometimes. So again, Wakian Duwampi is lightning. Um, and we see these things operating in various rituals. So like Duan can cause illness or it can cause misfortune or death, or it can also be used for healing. So, I mean, it's, it just depends on who is directing this energy and for what purpose. Um, we see it in the Wachipi Wakan uh, or the medicine dance where society members would, would shoot new initiates with their, their energy, their spiritual energy. And it was physically uh, symbolized by a cowrie shell. Uh, and this would cause the, the ritual death of the initiate who would kind of fall down and sometimes, you know, cough blood and all these kinds of things. But then they would be revived uh, by the member, by the other members of the medicine dance um, and brought back to life, right, in this new persona or role as a member of the medicine dance. They would cough up the cowrie shell, and that would become the center of their sacred bundle. Um, you could also infuse objects with Duwampi, like medicine bundles, for instance. Um, and then after that, after, after an object is infused with this potency, it's considered as a living essence. Um, it's the embodiment of that interiority. Um, <clears throat> imminence goes along with the, that idea of virtuality. Um, the, and specifically the idea that it's a part of actuality, but it's different, um, that it's just the kind of the plane of potential and possibilities and imagination. Um, so I guess what I was trying to say with that in the case of Lakota ritual, that, um, mythology, dreams, and visions, ritual, these are all considered to be part of cumulative self-related experience, even though these realms are largely psychological or spiritual and involve imagination potential, um, and perhaps the willing suspension of disbelief too. Um, just because of that, it doesn't mean that they're not important, meaningful, and impactful. Because after all, you know, what could we really accomplish as human beings without imagination? All things originate in the mind with ideas and imagination. Um, and then the last part of your question here, you ask about altars and other uh, ritual dynamics. And there are lots of ways to think about altars in Lakota culture. Um, in, in the old days, in the bison hunting days, Everything had to be portable, right? Because they were nomadic hunter-gatherers. Um, so the technology for creating ritual altars involved, like I mentioned before, subjectivizing and personalizing various objects like stones or bison skulls or the earth itself, which would be carefully mellowed and kind of cleared of all living things to make it appropriate or purify it for uh, communication with the divine or the sacred or whatever you want to call it, with spirits. Um and then once once the altar was properly prepared, it was really like a door or kind of like a portal, if you will, to the other world or the spirit world where it opened the door for interspecies communication and relationship for human and non-human communication. So uh, Alice Fletcher, a famous uh, uh, ethnologist, um, uh, her consultants at uh, 
uh, her Lakota consultants in the 1880s called the altar Ummani, which means the other world or the other life. Um, so anyway, so altars, they were always essential and they continue to be essential as, as media of communication between human and non-human or be, between the microcosm and the macrocosm. What was the significance, you've already alluded to this, of the ceremonial bundle complex, including the synergy of the sack and its contexts, as well as the ritual activation of the bundle's waka potency? Yeah, so um, so ceremonial bundles were, they were like physical representations of, of, a, of an individual spiritual journey, I think, in a way. Um, they were seen as, as really powerful. They were reverenced like the spirit whose essence they contained, like I mentioned before. Um, again, in, in the bundle, as well as in, you know, human interaction with other humans or with non-humans, it was the, the interiority, the spirit, the, the essence, the potency that was more essential than the actual phys- physical objects in a bundle in many cases. Um, and we see, you know, bu- the bundle complex in lots of different cultures. So like the, the horticulturalist tribes like the Arikaras, they, they tended to have like village bundles. But Lakota bundles tended to be more individual um, in, in a lot of cases, not always. But so, so like dream societies, men's societies, they might have their own special bundles too, or, you know, bear bundles associated with bear medicine or whatever. Um, but, but for the most part, they were more individual. Um, it, they were called wopie or washichum. And they were called washichum because they were invested with the shichum, the potency of a spirit. Um, each person has a shichum given at birth by the, the spirits uh, from the stars. But then also in the vision quest, for instance, when you have a successful vision quest and you acquire, um, you acquire power, you, you, they, they call it a shichum, you get shichum. Um, it's like um, potency in some way or another. And it's kind of, it tends to be like specific to whatever creature or spirit uh, it came from. So when, when a bundle or an object was infused with a shichun, it was called a washichun. And then it was considered to be that, that spirit, that person. Um, and they were also, also uh, made according to vision specifications. Oftentimes um, they were associated with specific prayers or ritual formulae uh, and songs that you use to activate the bundle which really made kind of the spirit come alive in the bundle. You can think of it that way, maybe. Um, and then you could put it to some, some human use or purpose. Um, bundles could be offended if you didn't act the right way around them. They could be reactionary if they were offended. Um, and there were also war bundles, which were called wotrawe, uh, war medicine. Um, and they were, used, again, uh, they were used in relation to warfare. Um, to empower the owner to perform brave or miraculous deeds in battle or or on horse raiding expeditions or whatever. In terms of the synergy that you mentioned, in terms of the content of the bundle, again, it's really not the physical objects as much as the interiority, as the spiritual side of things. Um, although some bundles did contain herbs and medicines that were effective in curing and treating the sick. Um, but again, mostly it was the spiritual aspect that was the most potent in the combination of elements that formed an additional force or an energy that was Wakan, that was mysterious, uh, inexplicable, uh, that this, this Wakan influence that was greater than the sum of its parts. Um, so basically you addressed your bundle in the way that uh, uh, you, that in, in that Wachekia way that I mentioned before, in prayer, addressing as a relative. With all those things, you sing the proper songs, you recite the proper prayers, you make offerings or sacrifices, you honor, maybe you paint part of it or whatever. Um, and then that's activating the bundle. Then the spirit is present 
um, and you can have your bundle do things for you, basically. Um, and people really identified with their bundles. Oftentimes they were buried with their bundles, or maybe if they passed them down to an apprentice, then they weren't. But a lot of times they were buried with their bundles. They were considered to be like almost like this complete identification with your bundle. So I give an example in my book of a of a of an esoteric ceremony where you're, uh, a person is activating his sacred bundle and he recites this kind of ritual formula that basically says, I am you, you are me. It's like this relationship is very close between across the divide of human, non-human in Lakota culture oftentimes. So that's a little bit about uh, the bundle complex. So in a roundabout way, uh, we're going to get finally going to get to the title of your book, All My Relatives. Why are participation, representation, respect, and covenant all crucial for Lakota notions of life as a process of transformation and continuous birth, growth, and development across generations? And how is this process expressed by the Lakota ritual phrase that the people may live and exemplified by the titular axiom, all my relatives? Yeah, so that's the title of the book, right? All my relatives. Um, And that's also something that you hear all the time if you if you're around Lakota people, if you go to Lakota ceremonies or, or anything uh, in any kind of formal speech, oftentimes you'll hear people say, all my relatives, we're all related. Um, and that's the, the theme that ties everything together, really. I just thought it really fit with this idea of the new animism, right? That we're all related, that we all share the potential for a common solar spirit, um, and it really, I thought, just made a lot of things become really clear and come into focus in the Lakota literature to look at it from that perspective. But um, so life is a process of transformation and continuous birth, growth, and development. Um, I, w- I read uh, a book by Jeffrey Anderson called The Four Hills of Life. This was in graduate school uh, about the Northern Arapaho. And I loved his idea that he calls life movement. And he defines it as the aim to generate long life, blessings, and abundance for self, others, family, and the tribe. Um, I just love that idea and I have used it ever since. And I think that really the goal of Lakota life and of Lakota ritual is to perpetuate and maintain life movement. Um, Albert Whitehat says that, you know, the goal of Lakota ceremony is to live well with your relatives. And I think that you think about that in the same way as life movement. Anyways, I really like that idea. And a lot of the things that you read talks about, you know, the idea that transformation is central to life. And it is, of course, it's some deep eternal truth in a lot of this stuff as well, but um, that life is a process of growth and transformation um, of continuous birth and change and development. And I thought that this idea of life movement fit along with that too. And this, this common ritual phrase that the people may live again, fits with what white hat says about the goal is, you know, to live well with your relatives and this idea of life movement. Um, So particularly Black Elk always is saying that the people may live. Why are we doing all these things? Why are we doing these rituals? That the people may live and continue to live. That life movement will be perpetuated and maintained. And we all participate in this this process, in this life movement, in this life transformation process. And all Oyate, not just humans, but non-humans as well, they must be represented in, in this process as well for it to work together. We've seen in um, in the natural sciences, how when one species um, goes away, that it has repercussions um, uh, like the ripple effect in, in an ecosystem, right? So we all need to work together and be represented together in order for this to, to work the way that it should, this life movement process. Um, 
Vine Deloria argues that um, that representation is the way to think about these things, not symbolism. So he says, representations, uh, representation means that there are spiritual presences in attendance in the same way that people represent an interest group or institution. It does not mean representation in terms of images or communication. Rather, the spirits are here present, ready to participate. Um, so again, I think that all, all of these groups together have to be there have to be representatives from all of these groups in order for things to um, to continue on in a good way, the way they should. The as a Lakota person might say that uh, to walk the good red road, right? To to have a good outcome, to to perpetuate and maintain this life movement. Um, and I I think we we talked a lot about the kind of uh, theoretical aspects of the book, but I think that um, one of the really cool things for me about this book is that it brings together so much of the literature on the Lakotas and particularly it puts all these things, these new kind of theoretical ideas with new animism and stuff into dialogue with those sources. And particularly with the Deloria's with Vine Deloria's work and with Ella Deloria's work, his aunt. Um, but so anyway, sorry. So to get back to, um, to participation, representation, respect in the covenant. So um, Deloria says that, you know, this is a moral universe and the, the, the American Indian view of things is that, um, we live in a moral universe. That there's a proper way to live in the universe. That there are um, that there are repercussions. That that that, um, uh, that we're all responsible for our actions. Um, that that the sum total of our life experiences. That it has a reality. Um, that there's a direction to the universe, um, and that we're all together responsible for for our actions, for our activities. Um, in this kind of continuing creation of reality in this life transformation process in the process of life movement as, as Jeffrey Anderson puts it. Um, and so we're related again. Um, we, we share this universe together. Um, we share this earth together. We share our experiences on this earth together. Um, and so that, that phrase, uh, that Lakota ritual phrase, um, all my relatives, um, that really captures that for me. Uh, and it fits so well with so many things that Vine Deloria said and the things that, um, that I've heard in my experiences in my field work with uh, living with Lakota people and sharing with Lakota people. And also again, then with the, the ontological turn uh, theoretical stuff like Descolon, people like that. Um, Vine Deloria says that all my relatives has much more to teach us. It's not just kind of a spiritual principle, but it's also a practical principle. Um, he says it's the methodological basis for the gathering of information around the world. So it's an epistemological principle in the Indian, uh, in the native American or American Indian worldview. Um, and he talks about two key ideas that, that you've mentioned here, respect and the notion of a covenant in terms of how we can all work together to continue this life movement process. So he says respect in the American Indian context does not mean the worship of other forms of life, but involves two attitudes. One is the acceptance of self-discipline by humans to act responsibly toward other um, communities, human or non-human. And the other attitude is to seek to establish communications and covenants with other forms of life that are mutually agreeable and mutually beneficial. So really mutual respect um, and mutual beneficence, I guess, is at the heart of his idea of the covenant um, which he says is a really important concept for tribal peoples, which places responsibilities on both parties really importantly. Um, and it acknowledges our common kinship that we're all related. Um, and so, I don't know, he goes on to say a lot, uh, a lot about the, uh, the idea of maturity 
from an American Indian um, context, the ability to reflect on the ordinary things of life and discover their real meaning, the proper way to understand them when they when they appear in our lives, and that we should all be striving for maturity, um, and that that's part of this this life transformation process, this process of individual and collective growth. Um, and that if we continue on this path in the right way, that we'll reach wisdom, that, that our knowledge will turn to wisdom, that we'll understand the world around us, we'll understand our place uh, in the world, we'll understand this, this axiom that we're all related on a, on a much deeper uh, level. Um, so basically, uh, thinking about these things, I'm trying to say that, that we all contribute to, we all participate in this ongoing process of life transformation that we call reality or life movement or whatever you want to call it. And if we can keep in mind the fact that we really are all related because we are, and we share the universe with other human groups and with non-humans. Um, if we take these lessons of Lakota philosophy and spirituality to heart, if we listen with open ears, we might yet reach a mature understanding of things um, that is inclusive, that is relational, uh, that is wise. So I have one final question for you. Are, are there any future projects that you can disclose to us at this time? Are you taking a vacation or what's next? What's next? Um, <clears throat> well, I'm working on a project with the uh, with o Oklahoma University Press with my colleague, Ronnie Anderson. Um, and we're tentatively calling it Lakota, A New Ethno History, where we're going to um, each kind of write different chapters in areas of our specialty. Uh, uh, about Lakota life and life ways and try to make it more contemporary and not just uh, a lot. There's a lot of things like that out there, but they're more focused on the past, but we want to bring it into the present. So that's one thing that's still in the works that I'm thinking about. Um, another thing is that right now I'm, I'm uh, working with Joanna Scherer from the Smithsonian on annotating the, uh, the, the field notebooks of Alice Fletcher from 1882 when she was in Sioux country um, and she was a fascinating character in her own right, uh, a pioneering female anthropologist, right? 1882. She was the first person to ever do field work uh, with the Lakotas. And so I'm going through her field, her raw field journals and data and annotating it and kind of pointing out things that will help uh, just a common general reader or whatever understand more what's going on. But that project is so interesting, too, because it's like you feel like you're there. You feel like you're living it or whatever. Like I'm going back to Pine Ridge in 1882. And it's just really interesting for me, um, having worked at Pine Ridge and still work at Pine Ridge to, to read those accounts from other time periods uh, about what was going on there and what the people were like and who the important people were socially and all these kinds of things and who, who the uh, practitioners were in medicine then and things like that. So so th those are two big projects I'm working on. I got a, an article coming out with uh, the Journal for North American uh, anthropology, I think, Jana, the journal, no, the journal for the anthropology of North America, sorry, Jana. And that's called the, the ritual Tioshbae in the social organization of contemporary Lakota ceremonial life, where I look at, um, what I call the ritual Tioshbae, which are these contemporary ritual groups, um, that the center of them is a medicine man or a practitioner. But I argue that basically these, these contemporary ritual groups are an amalgamation of, uh, historical, um, uh, institutions in Lakota culture and society, mainly the Teoshbae social structure and the Dream Society religious organizations. So um, those are a few new things that I'm working on or things that are going to be coming out hot off the presses. Um, and yeah, just keeping that going and teaching at uh, University of South Dakota and uh, working in the Native American Studies program and trying to uh, 
bring exciting events to the University of South Dakota in Native American Studies. So that's what I've been up to. Well, I'm looking forward to the books and the article, Professor Posthumus. It's been very, very, it's been a pleasure speaking to you today. Um, thank you for being on our show. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And you take care. So this is Ryan Tripp for the New Books Network, the Native American Studies channel. I'll see you or listen to you next time. <laughs>